Lord, the uh, passage tonight urges us to uh, uh, roll up our sleeves and prepare for action. And we pray that you would kind of burrow down by your word and your spirit inside us uh, so that we find the things that will actually make us act. May we not read about action, but may we get on with it. Amen. Some of the... um, uh, what, some of what I have for you tonight is, is about food. Quite a lot of it's about food. Um, and it just occurred to me that um, the, reason, the reason the reading that you, you had stopped um, at verse 23, instead of chapter 2 and verse 3, I suspect, was the absence of a colon. And when it comes to food, as you know, the absence of a colon can be quite, rather, can be quite difficult. So that, that's the kind of set the theme, really, for us uh, uh, the, this evening. <laughs> It's fairly basic, but there you go. Um, I, I, about a year ago, I was with a friend in Leicester, and we went out for a meal. And if you're in Leicester and you go out for a meal, what are you going to go for? You're going to go for a curry. Um, and I, I ordered it. It wasn't a place I'd ever been to before. I ordered my curry, and uh, I sat in front of it and uh, realized about three-quarters of the way through that it was really proving uh, quite hard work. Uh, and I guess we've all at some point sat in front of a meal that we really, really wanted to enjoy and then found there was so much more of it than it had originally seemed and we ended up just feeling stuffed. And I cannot think what possessed me to offer you so many verses uh, this evening. We could easily end up feeling just stuffed. So I am not going to try to cover all of it in the same way. We're going to taste some parts We will barely sniff others. We will tuck into the middle section and we will consider the possibility of pudding later on. And let me suggest now why I think it feels like so much. It it doesn't take take a long time to read, but there's just so many bits to it. It's a bit like a, a plate of steak from one of the less cherished parts of the animal. There's a lot of connective tissue. Um, There's three fours two therefores, and a since, which means that you're forever trying to hold on to bits and pieces. Oh, that that bit must matter to that bit, and go backwards and forwards. So I'm not going to pretend that I will have covered everything, Um, but I'll, I'll do one set of things, I hope, reasonably. So go to verse 13. Uh, It's the first therefore. Well, you know that in the Bible, if you come across the therefore, you've got to go back, because it's telling you something about what was behind that. So, um, the passage behind that we started, uh, verse 10, says, concerning this salvation. Well, right, that means you've still got to go back a bit, because what salvation? And that means we need to go back to to take a quick sniff of the verses before. We could do worse than look at verse 3. Jesus Christ was dead on the cross... And he was raised, and we are born again. That salvation. Concerning this salvation, what salvation? That salvation. He was dead, he was raised, and we're born again. And we're going to go on to hear later in this letter that those to whom Peter is writing are in a bad way. They're suffering for their faith. They perhaps feel that the great days of God's people were all in the past and not for them. Uh, but uh, God was no longer about, and yet not so. Verses 10 to 12 
are saying, no, you are the people that this salvation was aiming for all along. The prophets wanted to know what you've ended up knowing, but they couldn't see the fullness that would follow. They didn't see in front of them the pattern of suffering and glory as it worked out for Christ. Verse 11. They were serving you, it turns out. The evangelists who brought you the good news were serving you. Verse 12. Even the Holy Spirit himself was working for you. Verse 11. And finally, even the angels long to see what you have seen and to live out what you have the opportunity to live out. That all being true, therefore, verse 13, prepare for action. What it, uh, what it means is, I don't know if anyone uh, in church is wearing a, a, a long dress uh, tonight, but of course, everyone in those times would have worn a long tunic, and you'd have pulled up the middle of it, uh, tied it in a knot so that your legs were free, and you could run. And it was the equivalent to rolling up your sleeves. It's getting ready for action. And as so often in a uh, letter, we move from saying what the gospel is to what we are to do by way of living it. And there are two moments here worth noticing, I think. First, look back to verse 3 again. There, we are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And that, of course, is behind us. But now, verse 13... We can set our hope on the grace of God given at the revelation of Jesus that lies ahead of us. The start of following Jesus, verse 3, is birth into hope because of the past. The continuance of following Jesus is living out hope because of the future. Past and future of Jesus are there to establish us in hope. Well, that immediately makes you and me into a very odd people. We're marked out as different, not simply by how we live, but by the hope that marks the start and the end of our new existence. And then one more thing, before we actually get to this main course of considering what this action might be. There are two objections that can be made to God's way of doing things here, to to this inspiration of Peter so that he does He says, this is what happened to Jesus, therefore. There's two objections. They're objections of our own hearts, and they've been a a big deal in Christian history. The first of them works like this. Jesus died for me. I'm forgiven. Cheers, Jesus. Decent of you. And then makes no difference. Now, scale that up make it very posh and intellectual, and it's a huge issue in Christian history about, uh, about the 18th century. More importantly, it surfaces in your heart and in mine whenever we disobey God. It's this. How can the mere historical fact of history change the moral question of how I'm supposed to live today? Jesus has died. Well, no one questions that. Jesus believed he was dying for sins. There's not actually many people that question that. But that's simply a fact of history. It's gone, it's past, it's behind us. How I live now 
has to be a completely different question. And I think it matters because I think that lies at the heart of lots of the objections that we have to wade around. Uh, You'll encounter it perhaps in a colleague, perhaps at uh, your place of education. Well, that's nice for you, uh, but I don't need it. You can relate to that fact of history over there, but it doesn't make any difference to me now here in the present. So whatever we're going to have to say about this salvation and this action has to have an answer to why the word should can follow on from the fact of Jesus' death. You might call it the objection of unbelief. But there's also, secondly, I said there were two, there's the objection of what we might call ungrace. A good part of Christian history has been spent reckoning that God's grace accepts us, that's nice, but that our hope depends on our performing good deeds uh, into the future. So that when Peter here says, prepare your minds for action, oh, okay, God has accepted us, but now we're going to have to behave so that God will carry on accepting us. God, as it were, gives us a bit of a leg up into his good graces, but then we have to earn our place at his table. We can never be certain of the end result. And that's where I encounter it pastorally. And I want to ask you tonight, are you certain or doubtful about God's verdict on you when that moment comes? At the end of your life or if he returns sooner? Are you certain or doubtful about the verdict of God on your life when you encounter him? And if you're doubtful, then you need to listen right now because this is as good a place as any to remind ourselves of what grace is. We were singing about it. Whatever we're going to say about this salvation and this acting, it has to allow the gift of God in Christ, the sacrifice of the cross, to have its full weight. We are free and freed. We can be certain because our certainty lies in his cross, not in our competence to behave well. The event of Jesus sets us entirely in the right with God. What Peter is going on to say is not about staying in God's good books because you've been a good boy or girl. It's because you are in God's good books, because you are there in his pleasure as his child. You just want to do what your father would be pleased by. And so, let's head into our main course that follows on from verse 13. How should I prepare my mind for action? How should I set my hope fully? How should we be obedient children? How can I avoid conforming to the way I used to be? Those are the uh, imperatives in those verses. And there are three reasons. Firstly, Because I tell you to. Verses 15 and 16. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. I tell you this. Do it because I tell you. The word of God 
says that this isn't an accidental fact in history, this cross. It arises from the fact that God has, always has had, a people for himself to echo his own character. He's always marked them out as different. And this is his way of doing it once for all through the cross. What happened to Christ then isn't just in the past. It reflects God's character with us. He is holy. Now he says, be holy because I am holy. It's a command, be holy. Yet isn't it extraordinary that it's not only a command, but it is actually a command of something that is possible. It is extraordinary that because he is holy, we can be holy. Not just must be, but can be. What we take on, um, as they say, positionally, God has moved me into this sphere of, of holiness, set me apart by the blood of Jesus on the cross. It's once for all, it's done. But then it becomes possible for me, because he's done that, because I'm his child, to echo his own holiness. And that's, that's why he bothers to say it. He doesn't say, um, follow me. I know you can't, but I'm going to tell you to do it anyway. He says, be holy because I am holy. And because I am holy, you can be holy. Why should we prepare for action? Because I tell you. Then secondly, because I discipline you. Since you, verse 17, this, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Notice that judges is the present tense. It doesn't mean will judge. It means now. Who judges each man's work impartially. God is constantly assessing our relationship with him, the way in which we show that relationship with him. And we mustn't say about God as judge that it's something conveniently parked in the future, Nor should we say that, well, because he's my daddy, because we've all read about Abba and Father, therefore he can't really be a judge. No. You call on a father who judges impartially. Our work is being judged impartially all the time. Now, our final verdict is certain and assured. We are in Christ. We are forgiven. But the ancient world knew that the, the role of the father of a household, not just a little nuclear family, but an extended household with, with slaves and dependents and everyone else around, that was an absolute obedience. And the father was called in to judge the uh, arguments that would go on within family life. Uh, he did this to me, well, I did that to her. Our sense of reverence, I suspect, has disappeared now, and now we reserve it for singing charismatic choruses that just make us tingle. And that tingle is confused with reverence. 
and awe. But what Peter's talking about here is a relationship with a powerful father figure who brings our deeds constantly into assessment and has an ongoing relationship with us. Remember all that Jesus says in John's Gospel about pruning. That's what's being described here. God assesses our work, and according as it pleases or doesn't, he he prunes us and drives us by circumstances, bringing his constant judgments into our lives. We're called actually to recognize the power and the right of this father judge as those who are placed to do what he says. Still that note of character again. Because we are strangers and different, uh, we serve him, no other father, no other judge. We can be holy. So secondly, because I discipline you. Then thirdly, uh, because I free you. Uh, Verses 18 through to 20, it's longer, so I'm not going to read all of that. The point that those guys made way back in history was a very good one. And we need to to have an answer for it because actually it kind of beats in our own brains still. How can a detail of history affect what is ultimately right? If it's right, it's right, irrespective of what history has done about it. But again, all of that neglects relationship. When I was a curate, um, uh, I'm, I'm not saying this is necessarily an example for all curates to follow, but it, is, it, it was true for me. When I was a curate, there was a, um, a family who were particularly kind to me uh, as a single man, and they ran into financial difficulties. And I gave them a considerable portion of what was then my available wealth, such as it was. The gift was a fact. They could have said, oh, cheers, Alan, nice one, and have it make no difference to them. But they didn't, because the gift took place within a relationship. And this gift, now in Peter, this gift is like no others. It's now, it's not about money or or silver or gold, verse 18. It's about the very lifeblood of God in Christ. The Christ who's been the apple of the Father's eye since before all things came to be. He is the great sacrifice, settling every account that there is with God. God with whom we would otherwise have nothing but a broken relationship. But it's a sacrifice given gladly because of the relationship that the Creator has with those he made and loves and longs for. Let me just, uh, this is on the way, it's a kind of, uh, 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 what's, what's this? Um, this is a little bit of a sprout on the side of the, pay, on the plate. Um, but uh, I, I was very interested when I read this. Uh, verse 21. Through him, through Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Well, I repent. When I uh, first came here, um, I took over a, a Christian basics course, and uh, I was persuaded that this basics course started in the wrong place because it went straight for Jesus. 
And actually, there were lots of people around the place who didn't know anything about Jesus. What we really needed to do was to uh, start with Unit 1 on, on God. And uh, so I wrote a, a session on God. So we had God first and Jesus second. And I repent of that decision because of that verse. It's important to register in our conversations with friends, those we care for, whoever they may be, that it is utterly pointless to try to argue people into something around God and then sort of hope that you'll get to Jesus. We have this evidence here in verse 21 that that's not the way around it works. You go for the story of Jesus and you rely on the fact Uh, that God's Spirit is at work, and you can't tell that story and have it make any sense without someone going, ah, this story only makes sense if there's God behind it. You begin with the story of Jesus. After all, if you argue for the existence of God, all you've done is put yourself in the same situation as umpteen religions across across the world. It is through Jesus, verse 21, that you believe in God. It's that way round, which I just mentioned. This is still within uh, the third point around uh, why do what we're told? Because I free you. We have faith and hope in God. We are holy, according to verse 21, because of this fact of history, the sacrifice and raising of Jesus. Hope does not mean an abstract future in which, oh, Jesus has done some nice things in the past and I've got a hope in the future. I don't have to do anything now because, you know, the past is sorted and the, 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 the future is sorted, so, you know, who cares? On the contrary, what hope means is that it gives us a direction, a kind of grain to the way we live. Now, we're going to live one way or the other. It's not act this way or nothing. Whatever we do is action. The action that we are to uh, live with is in line with the, 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 the kind of this grain that's been created between the past of Jesus' cross and the future of Jesus' return. Well, all of that was the main course, and I'm going to come back to it. All of this is a reason why we should seek holiness But we could say that the pudding, really, for today, was what the holiness looks like. And it looks like love. If the sacrifice of Jesus and his raising are real, then new life is possible because we're different. Uh, We've been made different. We're born again, as the text says. And the seed sown in us is imperishable, verse 23. The 18th century looked at the history and looked at morality and couldn't see the connection. Finally, because it neglected us. We ourselves are the key factors. If we are born again, born again by the word, as Peter says it, and born again as beings who are different, then past facts, present behavior, future hope can all be brought together. And the key obvious feature of lives lived in faith and hope, verse 23, our love, sorry, verse 21, our love, a sincere love, verse 22, 
for the others around us. Faith, hope, love. Oh yeah, it's that threesome again. And what love looks like is there in the first verses of chapter 2. Don't be full of malice and deceit and envy. Those are the sins of unlove. Don't long for what others have with envy. Don't speak against what they have or are through malice. Rather long for, crave, verse 2, pure spiritual milk. It doesn't mean, sometimes in scripture it means milk not meat. It doesn't mean that here. It just means what God has on offer. And thus grow up. That's a quick sketch of verses 22 onwards. But I want to go back to the main course. And despite all that there is in this passage tonight, I want to say that I myself would quite like like to add the wafer-thin mint that is chapter 2, verses uh, 4 through to 10. I'm not going to, but I'd quite like to. Because. And this is where it gets personal, because I don't know whether it's it's because I'm getting older or uh, whether I'm just cranky. Um... But as I look at my life, I, I, I know, I know that, that Peter, under the direction of the Spirit, summons me to obedience because I tell you, because I discipline you, because I free you. I know that those are true. But it doesn't lead to my obedience. I wonder if it does for you. Yes, I know that reading my Bible and what he says should make me obedient. I know that the prospect of discipline should make me obedient. I know that knowing I'm a freed and forgiven sinner, one who's become a child of God, should make me obedient. But they don't. Not for this sinner anyway. Not enough. Why? I think it's because they are ideas. Ideas that I'm invited to consider as an individual. Am I alone in finding these things true? I nod my head when I hear them in church. I would genuinely be interested to know from you afterwards whether I am alone in this. What I can say is it all reinforces the importance for me of what's coming next in chapter 2. The living stones. The community that is a holy nation. Now there isn't a therefore between verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 2. There isn't a for or a since. But I suspect that we are actually to carry on the reading, as it were. More and more, I suspect that the key reading of Scripture, if we're to be effective, is in community. If you like, that the key craving for pure milk actually happens in the creche together. I'm very interested in a model for new Christians that a friend of mine is working on with others. The idea that what we might do in our small groups and our very small groups, our twos and our threes, is not study Scripture. After all, why would we study in one place to go out and then do it, actually do it somewhere else? Wouldn't it make more sense to do what they're trying to do, to be in a community 
and to say, I see that this passage tells me I'm to be without envy. All right. Well, when we get together again next time, I will review with you how things have gone with envy this week. Is it just me that personally finds it hard to do it just because God tells me? I find it much better. It's hard still, but in a good way, to do it because God tells me and my friends will ask me whether I've done what God wants. Not harshly, we're all sinners. But just what I'm looking for is something that brings all these elements together on the plate. These elements, because I tell you, because I discipline you, because I free you. I don't want something that goes on to chapter 2 and verse 4, as though we've left all that behind now, we've made all those points, now we're going to start talking about the church. Isn't that lovely? And it's a completely different thing. I suspect they're meant to be together. Somewhere along the way, I reckon we took a mighty wrong turn when we decided that Bible reading was fundamentally a private activity. I was trying to think of a kind of picture to finish with. And uh, before I came over tonight, um, uh, Natalie was in the kitchen uh, working on some cooking and during the inevitable breaks um, was looking at um, an edition of MasterChef on her iPad. And as I walked in, John Tarode was tearing someone to pieces um, on MasterChef because they got all the right elements on the plate. And he was saying, look, this is ama- your techniques are fantastic all these things you've delivered on this plate. The problem with this plate is that it doesn't hang together. It doesn't add up to a, to a meal. Now, I think that the elements that we've looked at mainly tonight in chapter 1, I think that if we leave them on the plate as they are, they will not add up to a proper meal. But it's as we set it all in a wider context. Maybe I could, I could imagine taking you on a journey that's around sources, but I won't do that because that would just be naff. Um, but it's, a, it's as we find some kind of wider context and takes into account that we do this together. God tells us, but he tells us together and we have relationship with each other. There's a sincere love of the brothers to take into account. There's uh, uh, discipline, But it's something we look at and engage in together and and speak of and pray about. Uh, He does it because he frees us, but it's something we rejoice in and praise him for and thank him for together. That's the wider context, it seems to me, in which those things can make sense and finally be the oomph that I personally need to prepare my mind for action because the sad truth for me is that I can read this stuff till I'm blue in the face and it doesn't make enough difference to the life that I want to live for my Lord. If it does for you, rejoice and be glad and tell me. But if you're like me, then let's think about how we can do these things better together. Let's pray. Lord God, there's so much here, and uh, I've just looked at the clock and realized how long I've been going on for. I 
And I suppose my prayer is simply that there would be something on that plate that has made sense to each one of us. We do rejoice at what you have done for us in Jesus. But please, God, let it make more of a difference to us. Even today, even in the hours that remain of today, let alone tomorrow, than we know it does all too often. Because we are those who want to see our Lord lifted high, raised on our praises and our thanksgiving. Not only for all eternity, but right now in the day-to-day business of life. Amen.